0: Good afternoon, KPFK listeners. This is Here in the City. We are a brand new show on Mondays at 2 p.m., bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape. I'm your host, Sarah Harris.
1: And I'm King Anya, your streetlight out here in the city.
0: And now the news.
1: In Havana, Cuba, officials announced today that the government will lay off at least half a million state employees by spring 2011 and reduce restrictions on private enterprise to help those people find new jobs. The most dramatic step yet in President Raul Castro's push to radically remake employment on the communist-run island. According to the Associated Press, the layoffs will start immediately and continue through the first half of next year, to soften the blow the confederation said that the government would increase private sector job opportunities including allowing more cubans to become self-employed and to form cooperatives run by employees rather than government administrators the cuban government will allow an increase in private control of state land and businesses and infrastructure through long-term leases
0: all that's in the ap yeah wow that's huge i mean it's maybe not surprising but that's enormous um and this month the atlantic came out with their September issue, an in-depth interview with Jeffrey Goldberg that he did with Fidel Castro, and he steps back onto the international stage now after he's been away for what, two, three years? Almost four years now. And Goldberg speaks to the retired revolutionary leader about his illness, and he asked Castro if being sick had caused him to change his mind about the existence of God. Fidel responded, sorry, I'm still a dialectical materialist. But actually further on in the piece, there's something that has to do with this economic news in Cuba. Basically, Goldberg says that Castro told him the Cuban model doesn't work for us anymore, meaning that it's the Cuban economic model that doesn't work for us anymore. But Fidel Castro posted a response and he disputed it, saying it means just the opposite, actually.
1: Actually, Julia Swag, I read, who was present during that interview, took the comment as meaning that the economic model of Cuba was ineffective not the revolutionary model but it makes sense given today's announcements with the layoffs and privatization in the island but Maybe in Goldberg and Swine both spaced out while Castro was talking.
0: But speaking of space, individuals and private corporations in the United States already have claimed property rights on the moon. Yes, this is true as a result of a loophole in the United Nations Outer Space Treaty from 1967, which bars ownership of the moon by nations but not individuals. National Geographic reports that a company called the Lunar Embassy claims to have sold 3.7 million acres of real estate on the moon and planets other than the Earth. Why is this important? Because now China is claiming the other final frontier. The New York Times reported yesterday that Chinese scientists have planted a People's Republic flag 4.3 miles under the ocean on the floor of the South China Sea. The submarine craft used to perform the feat is named after a mythical dragon and it goes deeper than any other in the world and gives China exclusive access to 99.8% of the seafloor. What are they looking for? Take a guess.
1: I don't know. Um,
0: It's not oil. It's minerals. It's minerals? Yeah, like those rare earth things.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad that somebody's claiming the sea. I mean, all the land is claimed. Before we skip the space, we got to, you know, we got to claim the whole earth first before we just go out there and claim the moon, steal some unclaimed parts of the waters. Let's get our priorities in line before we just go. Actually, last night, pop sensation Lady Gaga sparked a lot of outrage over her wardrobe choice at last night's Video Music Awards. Uh, She sported an outfit made entirely of meat. Mm -hmm. Mm, and Peter was uh, quoted as uh, calling the uh, outfit offensive, saying someone should whisper in her ear that there are more people who are upset by butchery than who are impressed by it. And this means a lot of young people will not be buying her records if she keeps this stuff up.
0: And rightfully so. I think it's a sign of our corrupt times. Meat, dress,
1: yeah, purse,
0: maybe. shoes...
1: And the hat to match, you know. Well, it was actually later released that the outfit was actually made entirely from the dead horse that was beaten by Taylor Swift and Kanye West.
0: <laughs> but seriously, coming up later in the show on Here in the City, we talk about meat that sustains community and culture on Whittier Boulevard.
2: You drive through East LA, that's that's one thing you you probably won't you won't forget is the chicken on the roof, and it's you know. People describe, describe the store as, oh, it's the store with the chicken on the
1: roof, the rooster on the roof.
0: I'm Sarah Harris.
1: And I'm King Anye,
0: And we're here with you for the hour.
1: This is Here in the City on KPFK.
0: It's Here in the City. I'm your host, Sarah Harris. It's a brand new show. We'll be here every Monday at 2 p.m. on KPFK with radio realities from the urban landscape. Last Sunday, a young Guatemalan day laborer was fatally shot in the head by veteran police officer Frank Hernandez near 6th and Union in the Westlake area of Los Angeles. Police say the man threatened officers with a knife. Witnesses say there was no knife. Confusion had ensued about the slain man's name. Originally thought to be Manuel Jimenez. a coroner's report identifies him as Manuel Ramírez. After several days of community outrage and serious street protests, Police Chief Charlie Beck made a public presentation where community members hurled boos and shouts of asesino at him. Since then, the LAPD has cracked down on the streets in Westlake. Here in the city producer, Luis Sierra Campos went to MacArthur Park on Friday and has been following the story since then. As I drove
3: to the Westlake area, um, I really couldn't find parking um, because a lot of police officers were... um, Detour in traffic away from the Westlake area. And when I actually talked to a police officer that I really wanted to cover the story, he told me that I just had to turn around and that there were no parking and that I could potentially get arrested.
0: According to sources cited by the AP, Officer Frank Hernandez has a reputation for treating street vendors with excessive gruffness. The Los Angeles Times reported on two previous shootings by Officer Hernandez, one in 1997 and one in 2008. Whether or not this particular officer's record has any bearing on the fatal shooting, another fact might. Ramirez did not speak either English or Spanish very well, both languages that the LAPD used to address him.
3: That's right. Um, Ramirez spoke Kiche, a common language spoken in um, Guatemala and Mexico. Um, I spoke to the organizer from the Central American Resource Center, Carecen, who worked at the Day Labor Center and who had met Ramirez. My name is Jose
4: Roberto Veliz, I'm a day labor organizer and we're standing here in front of the Day Labor Center. We're, we're a long union and we're in the middle of uh, Wilshire and 6th Street, uh, just a li- kind of a, like a block away from where the incident happened.
3: So what do you, um, based on your observations, being here the majority of the time, do you do you see a difference in like the day labor community and the community itself, since the incident happened on Sunday?
4: There's a little bit like more patrolling of officers around this area uh, during the, the daytime. Um, but as far as police people actually uh, doing, stopping people for the moment, they're they're li- doing, they're being a little bit more hesitant for the moment, um, being that I feel that they're frightened that. The community here is angry with the police officers, and they don't want anything more to ignite ignite that. Uh, so at the moment, they're just patrolling people, uh, a lot, a lot more patrolling.
3: Do you condone the actions that have been partake by the community towards the police officers and vice versa in the past few days? You know what I mean. Whew. People are—they're
4: just frustrated. They're frustrated of, of what happened and. And, and it does make you a little bit angry, you know, I mean, again, this officer could have used any other procedures, it's, that, that it's, it's, it's hard, you know, people are really frustrated, I'm mad at the situation, the procedure in which the officer uh, took, I mean, he could, could have taken any other measure, but he chose to shoot the, the man in the, in the head, and um, it's just, they're venting out their, they're venting out their anger, I mean, there's... And there's, there's been so much in this community done because of the, with the officers. Uh, you know, it's just people trying to make a living about bending in the streets and they're not able to. The officers are harassing them. Uh, just to the 2007, uh, you know, incident that happened with the, right there in the Makati Park. So all this has been escalating and uh, seeing that, that this has happened, you know, it's just, I don't know, it just makes sense to me how the, the community has been reacting.
3: Can you tell me what the community in the Westlake-MacArthur Park areas consist of? The community consists of
4: uh, Mexicans and Central Americans. Um, and being said that, that the people who come from Central America, there's a large population who are, who are indigenous. Uh, indigenous that speak their own native language. There's a large uh, community here that, uh, that speak uh, the language quiche, which was the language of the person who got killed this past Sunday. Um, something interesting that was put forth in that meeting was that that police officers should take into consideration uh, where the, based on where they could what they work at. Uh, if there's a certain language uh, either than English and Spanish, uh, the police policemen should take that other language into account, and you know, just in case of any other incidents like this should happen.
0: That's Jose Beliz from CARESEN, the Central American Resource Center, speaking with Here in the City producer Luis Sierra Campos.
5: Back in on misery. Left me alone, I
1: grew up amongst the diamond. Today marks the 14-year anniversary of the slang of rapper Tupac Shakur. Though the 26-year-old rapper's murder is still unsolved, Tupac's influence has dominated hip hop for well over a decade. We at We Remember Tupac here in the city.
0: And we are here in the city. I'm your host, Sarah Harris.
1: And I'm King Anye.
0: And we are here in the studio with Scott Horton from Antiwar.com. Hi, Scott. Hi. What are we talking about today?
6: Well, uh, today we have Antiwar.com senior editor, Jeremy Sapienza, on the line. And I'm going to be asking him about American intervention in Somalia over the past few years. Take it away. Jeremy Sapienza, welcome to the show.
7: Hi. Thanks for having me, guys.
6: Uh, well, I'm really happy to have you here again, everybody. Uh, Jeremy is senior editor at Antiwar. Dot com, and you know, Jeremy, I was watching on TV. There's a bunch of bad guys in Somalia, and apparently, history began yesterday. And there are no reasons why there are bad guys in Somalia, but we might have to begin intervening there. Does that sound about right to you?
7: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're if you're watching the news, that does sound about right. Uh, it's funny that history does start anew every time there's something in the news about Somalia. But uh, <laughs> the fact is that these are all a continuing stream of events. That began long before Americans started paying attention.
6: All right. Well, now, so most people in America, if they hear Somalia or American intervention in Somalia, they think of Black Hawk Down, the uh, disaster at the end of what began as a humanitarian mission back in 1993, and uh, probably haven't known a thing about it until uh, maybe if they heard about the soccer game blowing up or being blown up in Uganda a few weeks back. And, uh and TV says that Al-Shabaab is a branch of Al-Qaeda. We might have to begin to intervene now. It's been, I guess, since 93 that we were there. Is that right, Jeremy? Uh,
7: no. Um, yeah, 93, and then Black Hawk Down, and that's really kind of a blackout between then and Al-Shabaab for Americans, except for pirates. Remember Scary Pirates?
6: Very afraid um, of pirates, yes.
7: Very afraid of these. terrible guys in little boats. small arms Um, anyway uh, uh, since 93 the US has been intervening in Somalia periodically uh, in addition to the UN but not as much as the US which has been paying off warlords to go after the so-called Al-Qaeda presence and and it's funny because as little Al-Qaeda presence as there is the US even admits as there is in Afghanistan literally 50 to 100 people. uh, It can't be that much, even close to that amount in Somalia, which is really kind of tangential to the war on terror.
6: Well, you know, say what they will about al-Shabaab, as far as real al-Qaeda in the country, the last I heard was there were three al-Qaeda in Somalia who were wanted for questioning by the FBI because they were suspects in the embassy bombings of 1998.
7: Right, well, as we know, the U.S. deals with, al-Qaeda suspects with large bombs. Um, they're wanted, but they're also wanted just dead. So but back in, I actually, I can't remember if it was 2008 when there were allegedly a few uh, al-Qaeda uh, men in southern Somalia and the U.S. literally sent uh, gunships that I guess are based in Djibouti and uh, sent s- several missiles into uh, refugee streams fleeing, fighting in Mogadishu. Right? Hmm. And, uh, this was to, because, you know, they're hiding among the population as those, as they tend to do.
6: All right. Well now, so let me narrow this down a little bit, because I want people to try to be able to wrap their head around the narrative of what happened there since, say, since 2005, really, and some of this back and forth, Jeremy. Well,
7: it's, it's more like 2006, I think, uh, when the courts union took over uh, a, a large chunk of Somalia, because mostly just in the in the law giving uh, area, because uh, previously there was sort of a, a as I said before, um, in, in at other times there, there was like an equilibrium of force between all the people that that had arms in Somalia, so it had actually calmed down quite a bit, and though so it was still not up to Western standards of as far as quality of life uh, Somalis had learned to deal with it, and it was relatively peaceful um, and actually had something of a functioning economy
6: mm-hmm. and then uh, what happened?
7: But, well, uh, the US, you know, started to freak out about Al-Qaeda in Somalia, and began uh, propping up certain warlords uh, with cash and arms infusions to try to root out this I guess three Al-Qaeda guys um, and that of course, threw off that equilibrium of force, which means that certain warlords—I mean, the warlords don't care about Al Qaeda; they care about cash and weapons and and power. So they took that the U.S. infusion of cash and weapons with a smile and said, "Oh yeah, we'll go after your Al Qaeda guys." Uh, but they used it to prop themselves up and take larger chunks of uh, Somalia for themselves, really. And uh, this began a lot of fighting, and uh, the courts union. Which was uh, just really an alliance of uh, Sharia courts throughout Somalia decided to band together and sort of impose a more what they what Somalis would consider a more just application of
6: so what you're law. saying is it was it was American intervention on the side of the warlords really solidified the power of the Islamic Courts Union rather than Absolutely. of the warlords right and then Correct. that leads there, us there to there Christmas was- 2006.
7: There never would have been a need for the courts union to have arisen without U.S. intervention.
6: Mm-hmm. All right, so now now it's Christmas 2006. What happens then?
7: Uh, well, the U.S. contracts... Well, they flip out over the Islamic Courts Union, of course, because they're called they're Islamic, and that's always bad. Um, after their uh, previous intervention failed, uh, they decided to intervene once again um, in what seems like a really... Just kind of crazy, haphazard way. Without thinking about it, they contracted the Somalis, hated uh, enemies, the Christian Ethiopians, to invade and overthrow the Courts Union and install a government made up of previous communist regime apparatchiks and warlords. The same, very same warlords. The U.S. has always been, uh, you know, before they fought them. Now they subsidize them um, to come into Mogadishu and I guess have Somalis throw flowers at them, and be the government, be their kind of liberal
6: okay, uh, now, so far we
7: European have... democracy.
6: Uh-huh. Well, it sounds like in the narrative so far we've got warlords, we've got the Islamic Courts Union, we've of course got the uh, uh, American Empire-Ethiopia division, but where's Al-Shabaab in this? What, when did they come into existence here?
7: Well, uh, the Courts Union, of course, fought back because they're not just going to let the Ethiopians come in and some old dudes who haven't run the place in 20 years just saunter in and and institute uh, the the same regime, really, that was overthrown in 1991. So they fought back. Al-Shabaab, of course, was the more radical element, the the younger element. In fact, it means the youth, um, which is always radical in any movement. So they were the more radical ones, the more ruthless ones, and then what happened is when the U.S. realized that they were not going to defeat the courts union, certainly not with the Ethiopians because they were so uh, grassroots in base, that uh, they, they, joined, they asked the Court union to just join this faux government that they had instituted. And m- much of the, the leadership of the Court union decided that they, that they would do it.
6: Okay, because so wait a minute, wait a
7: minute.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hi so, Jeremy and Scott, it's Sarah, the host of the hi. show, we're on here in the Hello. city, And um, I have a question just to bring us back a little bit and give a bit of historic context to this for those who may not be familiar. Can you tell us a little bit, Jeremy, about the relationship between Eritrea and Ethiopia and Somalia and how the Russians um, and Italians have been involved historically before we get to this moment? That has nothing to do
6: with this story whatsoever. So wait a minute. What you're saying, Jeremy. It actually
0: always does. There's always a historical context.
6: Whatever, dude. It's your show, lady.
0: Oh wow. Well wow. That's not hi Jeremy. <laughs> Sorry about hi. that.
1: The nerve of you for implying some sort of historic but, correlation. Man. But to get back to that
0: Grab question on.
7: Yes, I, I, I can I can give some some background. It's it's not uh it, it is somewhat relevant, but it's not um,
0: In what way is it relevant, if you could? Give us well, that point. I mean,
7: a- everything is always relevant, and background, it did happen before, so it was history, but Eritrea and Ethiopia, of course, used to be one country. Um, Eritrea was, uh, although I, be- I believe that the Italians ran basically the entire Horn of Africa for a while, except for little bits for the, um, the French and the British. Uh, Eritrea did split off in the, I believe it was ninety what seven or so. They had a civil war that continued for a while. Uh, i don't know that that and then allegedly Eritrea was backing the courts union, i think um is what was uh, alleged by the Ethiopians, but after they went in, uh, I think that was a problem so so Ethiopia and Eritrea have this previous rivalry, but when Ethiopia went into Somalia, they kind of dragged that in but i I don't know that that had too much to do with with what was going on because the intervention was the much of the forceful intervention was part of, was on the part of the U.S.
0: So why, remind us again, why, are, why is Somalia on your radar screen right now um, with regards well, the, in relation to the well, U.S.? The US
7: conti- well, of course, the U.S. continues to intervene um, and to uh, ask uh, African Union countries to intervene, like Uganda, which has a contingent of—they uh, continue to up it by— by several hundred troops every few weeks or so. It, it, I believe that the cap is 10,000 on African Union, that the African Union allows troops to go in. I think that Uganda's passed 8,000 now, especially since the bombing. They claim it's not because of the bombing that happened that they would have um, escalated in this way anyhow, but uh, it seems that it, that it was in fact.
0: Do you know where the arms are coming from?
7: The, which arms?
0: In the current in the conflict with the Ugandan soldiers, where are they getting their arms from?
7: Where, where are the, the Al-Shabaab getting arms from? Probably being sold uh, from, actually, the warlords that were part of the government before, or that were contracted by the U.S. to be part of the government. The U.S. has been funneling lots of arms into Somalia uh, for many years.
0: Dollar you know, figure? What's that? Do you have a dollar figure? Do you have a some idea can you give us an idea
7: no i I really don't uh but it was enough where the warlords were able to take power in around 2005
1: 2006
7: Um, and i and uh yeah it's completely possible i i think what you're getting at is that eritrea might have something to do with um sending arms to the courts union people right i mean is that what you're getting at because I've, I've heard that was part of the allegations that Eritrea was backing the courts union. So
0: it's, I see. I, mean, I was just trying to bring it back into a particular yeah, context. It, um, yeah, that's
7: entirely possible. It. I'm not totally sure, um, and I'm sure that there are people that I, there might not be any way to know because of how secretive it is. But
8: well, my so so co-host
7: like
0: the, Anya has a question yes, for King you.
1: Yes, King Anya here. Okay. In the last six months, maybe, uh, what 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 activity? been like, you know, how has is, how is things increased over the last six months, as opposed to the year? Like, what, what's, what about this is heating up recently?
7: Uh, I don't know that it's been heating up recently. It's just been, uh, it's actually kind of been simmering, ongoing. Uh, what, what happens is there, there's, a, occasionally there are large fights between al-Shabaab and the government, uh, and then you have large flows of refugees in and out of Mogadishu. Um, there are always, you're always seeing news reports of, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people fleeing Mogadishu. I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> Mogadishu only ever had a population of 2 million at its height, so these people must be going in and out constantly, and as soon as it seems like it simmers, you know, calms down a bit, they go, co- they go back in to resume their lives, and then they have to leave again. So this is really ongoing for a couple of years now, um, and I think Al-Shabaab is kind of up the ante by, uh, hitting inside Uganda
1: okay, that, that's- to
7: punish you know,
1: apparently the Ugandan government for okay. I mean, well, the reason I was trying to figure out what was going on in the most recently, because like like you kind of said earlier, um, uh, the only kind of contact or uh, things I've heard about Somalia recently in the news is about the pirates, and you know, and so this seems like you know something else that's that's looming in the in the in the in the surface or in the background. But um, so as I mean, as much as you know, you seem very informed on this. You know, you got to imagine like I know absolutely less than nothing. And so, like, what are some, like, you know, uh, resources or articles or, or, you know, literature I can find or uh, would you recommend that people go well, to get informed on?
7: Okay. Well, I, I would just, I think a lot of it is that people tend not to, uh, Somalia is not in the forefront as far as the news. People aren't paying that much attention to it. And I think no. the only reason that, let's say, they're aware of the pirate issue is because it's kind of sensational. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are like, what, pirates? wild. And so they pay attention for that. But uh, there's not really that much background given. But really, if you just if you read like BBC has a lot of coverage, it's sometimes it's very biased toward the interventionist point of view, but it at least has some facts in it. And they do have reporters on the ground there. And so if you just um, you could even just do a a Google News search for Somalia and and you would find some pretty interesting information as far as. uh, We'll do that.
0: We'll do yeah. that. Thank you. Uh, we are on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles.
1: 98.7 in Santa Barbara.
0: You're listening to Here in the City, and we are here in the studio talking to Jeremy Sapienza. Did I say your name right? Yes, you did. All right. Senior Editor at com. I'm Sarah Harris, and I have a question. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Jeremy, and about com for those who are just tuning in and who may not know?
7: I can. Um, I have been working with antiwar.com for uh, some eight years now. Antiwar.com is just a, a site with that, where we cover um, viewpoints and news from uh, all around the uh, political spectrum having to do with foreign policy and war, but mostly um, from the perspective of the United States because we're all American and uh, and <laughs> it just so happens that the U.S. is the one intervening the most around the world. And we're updated every single day, seven days a week, um, and many of us work all hours of the day.
0: And I hear Um, some uh, traffic in the background. Where are you at in the country?
7: I am in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in New York. Uh, We're we're, uh, all around the country, actually. What's that?
1: I said where it is by.
7: I'm sorry?
0: That one, that's all right. How many reporters do you have at antiwar dot com?
7: Uh, well, we don't really have we don't have original news reporters. We're more uh, just cover analysis, and we do our own analysis and
9: um, all right
7: uh, coverage from the point of view of the of our of our readers. What we think our readers want to see, but we have uh, I'd say we have five or six full time workers here that we all write and edit and, and do lots of things All right, all around the clock.
0: Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for talking to yeah, us today. This is Here in the City, and we will be back. We've been talking with Jeremy Sapienza, Senior Editor at Antiwar.com.
10: This is KPFK Interim Program Director Alan Minsky, here to announce that KPFK has introduced a new programming lineup for the fall. We have some exciting new shows that we hope you will find both enjoyable and illuminating. To see the new programming schedule and learn about our new shows, visit the KPFK website at www.kpfk.org. You are listening to KPFK's brand new public affairs magazine show with Sarah Harris, Here in the City. If you've tuned in to hear Indie Media On Air, you can hear Indie Media On Air at its new time slot, Mondays at 8.30 p.m., That is tonight at 8.30 p.m. And now, back to Here in the City with Sarah Harris.
0: Earlier in the show, we heard about the shooting of a young day laborer near MacArthur Park by a veteran LAPD officer. Los Angeles police are notorious for visiting antagonism and undue force on street vendors and taco truck operators. In my own reporting with journalism students, dozens of vendors and truck owners have recounted police harassment. Last year, taco trucks formed an association to protect their interests and filed a complaint with the Los Angeles Police Commission. Food trucks have caught on in the mainstream since then, and traditional fare like Tacos al Pastor and Hot Dogs Estilo de Efe —those are the ones wrapped in bacon— have been making way for more upscale and eclectic mobile eateries that serve fare like vegan tacos and other fusion food that is promoted on, oh yes, Twitter and Facebook— and can sometimes be confusing to order.
1: Hey, is it is it koji or kogi? Kogi. Okay. It's, wait, you you just said two different things. Is it kogi or koji? Kogi. 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 Kogi
5: is uh, it's beef.
1: It's beef. Okay. I just want to know how to pronounce it.
0: Yeah, okay. I got it. That's here in the city's resident comedian reporter, how's that for fusion, King Anya, who takes you to the intersection of food and funny every week, sharing fresh conversations with comedians at some of the many food trucks here in the city.
11: Yo, it's Sam Tripoli. We got police helicopters here in Hollywood. And we're here in the city. now that's what it's about. It's about getting in the theaters. It's about going uh, outside the...
1: The structure of what stand up is right now. Let's not lose our place though. Oh, you're in line? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh,
11: that's great. You gotta
1: be in line to eat, man. (laughs) I'd love to have three tacos beef
11: tacos. Yeah, tacos, sure. And a diet and a regular Coke, please. Okay, why not? I'm excited about this. Anything else?
1: Yeah, uh, blackjack quesadilla. Okay, one blackjack. And and, uh, some water.
11: Yeah, so that's what I'm working on. You know, I've I decided if I can't be famous, I'm going to have a good time. Okay.
1: And uh, how long have you been doing stand-up, man? About 12 years. What uh, what kind of sparked the, the flame to make you want to go out there and, and put yourself... Because it's, it's like one of those more creative... It's like one of the tougher performing arts. It's not like music or, or theater. It's, it's, you know, it's... it's There's less elements. It mostly all relies on you and the microphone and what you can do with it.
11: Well, it really is the most rawest form of entertainment. What
1: was your first time on stage like?
11: Here's the funny thing. First time on stage, I murdered. I crushed so hard. Second time, bombed so badly. You know, it's so funny. I went up the first time, killed, and I'm like, I got this. The next time, I ate it so badly, I was in the depression for a week. It was really rough, man, but, you know, it's like, I, I respect the bomb, man. A
1: lot of people don't do that. I respect it. Explain uh, killing and bombing for those who aren't familiar with comedic lingo, killing and bombing.
11: Well, when a, when a comedian says he killed, that means he uh, had an amazing set, that the crowd just, he's with the crowd and they just went nuts. And I've always felt, I've always felt that... Um, it's very, it's very interesting, the lingo that's being said, too. Like, I killed, I bombed, I crushed, I ate it. It's, like it's very violent terminology for something that's supposed to be so light and happy. You know what I'm saying? It's, su- it's such an interesting thing. Um, bombing is just no connect, and you just eat it. And you're just going down in a blaze of glory, and you're sweating and you just realize that every girl in the room wants nothing to do with you after the show, it is just not happening.
1: So, uh, how do you you see yourself uh, evolving since the first few times you started out and where you are today?
11: Well, when I first started, I uh, had a very much a, a Bill Hicks influence. There was a lot of, you know, righting the wrongs, calling out injustice and all that stuff. And that's fun, but then like the 2004 election happened, and I realized that nobody cares. <laughs> so uh, I just started telling them, you know, personal stories. It's like, you know, it's just like when you realize there's no, uh, that Washington and politics, is there's no uh, good guys, there's no bad guys, there's just good cop, bad cop, and they all just work together. And then anyone who gets angry over, you know, I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican, I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat. It's like, it's ridiculous. So now I just kind of just tell stories of my life and now it's just like, and that's what makes me feel good and that's how I'm connecting more. I'm just, I came to realize that, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's about entertainment. You have to entertain.
1: Okay, what kind of material do you stay away from? Um, What kind of material do I- Or do I... Like you like start writing like some premises and you're like, ah, that sucks to me. But a lot of it is like, I find myself starting Starting down past and then be like, ah nah, the hell with that. I stay away from unfunny material.
11: That's what I try not to do. By the way, ma'am, your skin is flawless. Congratulations on that. We're doing an interview on that. What's your name? What's your name? Sarah. Sarah's skin for you listening is flawless. You have Stop flawless it. skin. What's you know well, what I'm saying?
9: I was, I was wondering about this food truck. It looks really tasty and I'm very hungry, so You
11: should get in line and do you know grab if it's some cash grub. Only? Yeah, I think it yeah, cash is cash, cash only. only. Why? What do you Shoot. need some cash?
9: Well, I don't have any cash, but you know what? I might. Nice. So I just moved here from New York City. Where?
11: Yeah. Well, for a job, or just to go for it? Just
9: to go for it. I don't have a job yet. But, I'm excited for you. But maybe I can get a job with my super. You totally
11: could. <laughs> just look for skin, what Are you gonna work <laughs> on CNN? Well, maybe. You have a very news. Like I would like to hear my news from you. Really? Really. Mm-hmm.
9: Maybe I'll uh, I'll go and hit up CNN and see what they. Think.
11: I definitely want to hear about the miners trapped on the ground from you just really? to give me hope.
9: <laughs> That's awesome. I and really? Get, d- and to give them hope.
11: Yeah, you really would. By the way, that should be a reality show. That could be the gr- the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Seriously. Like, like they don't even know they're gonna be down there till Christmas. Oh. Mm. They don't know they, they
9: never broke them the nail. No, yet? I don't
11: how think do you, so. How do you break them? So you yeah. don't you, they don't know if it's different it just it, there's no day or
1: night there, it just
11: goes.
9: Yeah. So are you guys trying this out?
1: Yeah. We already put our bids in. Did you call Wallace? Is that who you just called, Wallace?
9: Yeah. No, I feel like I should be interviewing you as you eat
1: it. <laughs> you want to hold the mic? Yeah. yeah have one. Hey, I Are found out it's one? pronounced, it's yeah, pronounced uh, Kogi. It's, it's Kogi, It's, it's Kogi, you yeah, I had to ask.
9: Yeah, you can. I've got to do
11: it right, you know. Get authentic
1: you, you with Kogi me? sounded too cool to me, like, that's a cold G right there. This is Kogi. sounded too awesome.
0: King Anya, here in the city, next week, from another food truck with another comedian. And this week, you can catch King Anya live at the Improv.
3: Potato chips.
0: It's here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. Coming up next, we take a trip to Whittier Boulevard.
2: Crunch, crunch, I don't want no lunch. All I want is potato chips. Potato chips, how my mouth does drip. Potato chips, how my mouth does drip. Crunch, crunch, I don't want no lunch. All I want is potato chips. No matter where it is,
0: you'll always find it. A- it's here in the city, and we're here in the studio with Sabiha Khan who is going to take us to Al Salam Poyeria, a halal chicken shop in um, East LA on Whittier Boulevard. Sabiha, thank you for coming into the studio. And tell us where we're going.
12: Well, we're going to um, a halal poyeria. And as you said, a poyeria is a uh, live poultry shop where you can um, pick your chicken out and get it slaughtered to your liking. So who comes to visit the poyerdia? Well, it's called a poyerdia, and that's a Spanish word, so most of the clientele um, are Spanish-speaking. They're from different parts of uh, Central America and Mexico. The owners are Egyptian, and they'd initially um, opened the shop up in the early 80s for, you know, the Muslim population in L.A., which wasn't that much, but they thought, hey, you know, Let's see what will happen. And lo and behold, all these Spanish-speaking customers start coming in. You know, now that's who they serve.
0: So, Sabiha, what makes a halal butcher so popular in East Los
12: Angeles? Well, I talked both to Ahmed and, you know, the other owners of the store and customers, and there didn't necessarily seem to be an investment in the fact that the chicken was halal from the customer's point of view. And we're going to be hearing from Ahmed El-Rabat. His dad and uncle actually started the poedia, and now he manages the store full-time.
2: Initially, my father and uncle started this business back in 1984. That's when we actually opened. It was my father's idea. He used to go down to Chinatown, kill, uh, you know, usually chicken, um, for our own personal use for the house. And he came up with the idea, oh, why don't I do a similar business that would be targeting the Muslim community in the beginning because one this this community East Los Angeles there's not too many Muslims or if if any Um, so it wasn't really successful as far as uh, for the Muslim community didn't work out and it just ended up being that we because of a kind of wasn't studied or anything it was more luck that we ended up in East LA with the community that likes f- fresh poultry or fresh any anything really fresh. Um, so it kind of worked out that way that it ended up being initially for Halal and Muslims that it ended up being uh, in East LA with a lot of majority Latinos. Eating now, they're eating halal, but (laughs) it really doesn't. I don't think it matters to them. They just it. It it matters that it's fresh and it's a quality product.
12: I mean, sometimes, for instance, like on the walls, there's Quranic verses. There's pictures of Mecca. um, There's Quranic recitation playing on a boombox, and you know sometimes the customers ask, you know, what's that or that's kind of cool, but. That doesn't really influence their decision to buy the chicken. I mean, that's a part of their culture. The customers I talked to, they said, you know, um, we, lo- you know, having really a really good chicken broth or a chicken soup is really important. And the fact that it'd be fresh rather than refrigerated is because refrigerated meat has bacteria in it, and the blood hasn't been drained out. So, um, you know, um, it seemed to be more of a concern for health and cultural traditions rather than you know the fact that the chicken was slaughtered according to muslim dietary law the standards of halal meat are much in line with what the customers were talking about that their traditions were that you know the whole idea of halal meat is that well first of all the chicken is or the animal is raise, raised sustainably fed a vegetarian diet and then it's slaughtered in such a way that bo- both jugular veins are cut at the same time so that all blood is all the blood is drained like completely and then there's no risk of like bacteria
0: it's really different than going into albertsons and buying a six-pack of chicken breasts which essentially sliced up for you and put on a white a yellow styrofoam platter with plastic and a date so there's a difference there did they talk to you about this at um El
12: well they didn't necessarily mention that oh we you know, have a relationship with the chicken before we slaughtered or anything like that. But uh, they seemed to have a distaste for chicken that had been sitting around for days after it was killed. Um, they thought that was just, there was a kind of ick factor to that, I noticed, uh, both among the customers and um, Ahmed, the manager. Um, so, I mean, they they were just, most people were like, you know, we want what's clean and what's health healthy and what tastes good and that was really the kind of main criteria for them so
2: yeah that's true i i mean i've seen it firsthand that some people just eat meat they don't you know you just give them a piece of meat and they'll cook it i mean it could be filet mignon and you know seven dollar eight dollar a pound meat and they'll use it to for a stew (laughs) so some people don't, don't know what the meat is for you know they'll They'll use T-bone and make it into, they'll cut it, they want it in small pieces, make it into, into a stew also. So, yeah, there is a lot of people that don't know the different cuts of meat and, you know, how, What if you prepare it the correct way, you know, how tasty it will be.
0: So before you go, I want to ask you, what does it look like and smell like and sound like at the Poirida when you walk in?
12: <clears throat> the smell can be overpowering um especially you know um one of the the cutting room actually faces the street so if you pass that part of the storefront you smell blood and guts basically so if you're not used to that um be prepared maybe take a clothespin and pin your nostril shut or something um but uh in a way i think it's a good thing to smell that because um I don't think buying meat should be a sterile experience. I mean, obviously the environment should be sterile, but I mean, you should be confronted with the blood and guts factor, because then you realize what's being sacrificed for you to enjoy that meat. Sabiha Khan, thank you so much for
0: talking with us on Here in the City. Sure, thanks, thanks for having me. We'll be checking in with Sabiha regularly as she roves around the city reporting. I'm Sarah Harris, your host. You're listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. We'll be back.
2: Potato chips, hi, crunchy, crunchy, potato chips, crunch, crunchy, crunchy. A crunch, 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 I don't want no lunch. All I want is potato chips. Potato chips, how my mouth does drip. Potato chips. Crunchy, 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 don't bring me no lunch. All I want is potato chips.
0: You're listening to Here in the City. I'm Sarah Harris, your host. We're here in the studio with Jesse Lerner, who we're checking in with regularly about film and the arts and music. Jesse, thanks for coming. What are we listening to?
8: We're listening to Ornette Coleman's Quartet from 1959, playing a tune called Lonely Woman.
0: Why did you pick this selection to share with us?
8: Because Ornette Coleman, one-time Los Angeles resident, is coming back to town. He'll be performing at UCLA on November 3rd.
0: Ornette Coleman holds a unique place in the history of jazz. Can you tell us about him?
8: Ornette Coleman's the man that took bebop and stood it on its head. He's a master of improvised music, and he's 80 years old. He's still going strong, and I encourage everyone to go see him perform.
0: What was happening in 1959 that made Ornette Coleman such a controversial musician with this performance?
8: 1959 is the year of his famous gig at the Five Spot in New York. The engagement that took him from being an obscure and mostly unemployed and unemployable sideman to a national figure. He was a very divisive figure in the world of jazz. Uh, Some people heralded him as the future of the music, and other people were um, very adamant in their rejection of his innovations. It's, It's said that Max Roach, after hearing Ornette play at the Five Spot, went backstage to the dressing room and punched Ornette in the mouth and showed up outside the place where Ornette was staying at four in the morning screaming obscenities.
0: You mentioned that Ornette Coleman is a one-time Los Angeles resident.
8: Uh, He grew up in Fort Worth. Uh, He traveled around on the R&B circuit as a young man, With his plastic saxophone, he eventually moved to Los Angeles, where he lived for several years. His first two recordings he did here in in Los Angeles, and then subsequently he moved to New York. That's when the um, famous five-spot gig that I was talking about took place.
0: So what's the next selection?
8: In the early 60s, Ornette Coleman took something of a sabbatical where he stopped performing regularly. He picked up violin and trumpet. Uh, He's an autodidact on both of those instruments. He started developing his music theory that he calls harmonics more extensively, and he began recording with his son Donardo. Donardo Coleman got a drum set when he was a six year old and started performing and recording with his dad shortly afterwards. This is a composition called Bills and Chimes from an album called Ornette at 12.
0: is one crazy violin.
8: Well, Ornette claims that he plays the saxophone the same way he did 70 years ago when he first picked it up. He's a real first thought, best thought kind of person.
0: Ornette Coleman has collaborated with many musicians over his career. If you could pick one of those collaborations that you think really stands out the most, which one would it be?
8: Well, um, I haven't heard the recordings in their entirety. Only a few minutes of this material has been released. But in the nineteen seventies, Ornette Coleman went to Jajouka, in Morocco, and recorded with a group of. There's a group of musicians that are based in that town. It's a musical tradition that's, you know, at least a thousand years old. Uh, They play these double reeded oboe-like instruments uh, with a lot of percussion. That music is an incredible transatlantic musical encounter.
0: So let's hear it. You took this one off of an LP, so it sounds a little scratchy. This piece sounds really different from the other ones.
8: Well, he's been performing for over 60 years, and over the course of a very long career, he's done many different sorts of things and performed and composed for different types of ensembles and different individual musicians. Uh, What we'll see at the concert at UCLA is just one current incarnation of Uh, constantly evolving uh, musical figure.
0: We've been listening to Ornette Coleman and talking to Jesse Lerner, who checks in with Here in the City on a regular basis about film and the arts and music. Ornette Coleman will be playing live at UCLA's Royce Hall on November 3rd. Tickets are on sale now. You can find out more about Ornette Coleman and listen to a playlist on our website, hereinthecity.org. That's H E A R in the Ornette Coleman performing song for Che, as in Che Guevara. I'm Sarah Harris. This is Here in the City. And today, as many of you may well know, is the first day back at school for the Los Angeles Unified School District. After 116 days away from the classroom and starting the year with a $640 million deficit, ouch, this goes out to all my students teachers, parents, and staff who may have woken up this morning and said, I can't get out of bed. Here's Shel Silverstein in his own words.
5: I cannot go to school today, said little Peggy Ann McKay. I have the measles and the mumps,
0: a gash,
5: a rash, and purple bumps. My mouth is wet. My throat is dry. I'm going blind in my right eye. My tonsils are as big as rocks. I've counted 16 chicken pox. And there's one more. That's 17. And don't you think my face looks green? My leg is cut. My eyes are blue. It might be in flu. I cough and sneeze and gasp and choke. I'm My left leg is broke. My hip hurts when I move my chin. My belly button's caving in. My back is wrenched. My ankle sprain. My appendix pains each time it rains. My nose is cold. My toes are numb. I have a sliver in my thumb. My neck is stiff. My spine is weak. I hardly whisper when I speak. My tongue is filling up my mouth. I think my hair is falling out. My elbow's bent. My spine ain't straight. My temperature is 108. My brain is shrunk. I cannot hear the it's all inside my ear. I have a hangnail and my is What? What's that? What's that you say? You say today is Saturday.
0: <laughs> Goodbye. I'm going out to play. Pero échale ganas. Get off on the right foot, people. We can like Mondays and helping you along a little on Here in the City every Monday at 2 p.m. on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. Send us your thoughts. Tell us you love the show or that you have some places you want us to go at hereinthecity.org. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. And the props go out to my crew, King Anye on the mic in the field and in comedy, Luis Sierra Campos reporting from the streets and behind the scenes, Claire Fox in community and with her ear to the ground, Sabiha Khan out in the city, Jesse Lerner on the arts and music and movies, Daniela Gerson with the editorial ear, and Alan Minsky, the man who opens doors. I'm Sarah Harris. This is here in the city. We will catch you next week. Same time, same place where we'll walk into the water. I just
5: saw a Did you see it? Uh-huh.
0: Next week on here in the city. Peace.
10: This is KPFK Interim Program Director, Alan Minsky, here to announce that KPFK has introduced a new programming lineup for the fall. We have some exciting new shows that we hope you will find both enjoyable and illuminating. To see the new programming schedule and learn about our new shows, visit the KPFK website at www.kpfk.org. You were just listening to KPFK's new Public Affairs Magazine show, Here in the City with Sarah Harris. American Indian Airwaves, which was previously heard Mondays at 8 p.m., has now moved to Tuesdays at 8 p.m. So tonight at 8 p.m., tune in to hear Flip the Script with Rico Matsuda, followed by a 30-minute Indie Media On Air. And for the full programming schedule, go to www.kpfk.org. The following candidate statement
11: is property of the author and does not officially represent KPFK or Pacifica.
10: I'm
13: Arianna Gladney. I'm running with Grassroots KPFK Station Board, and as a South Central LA community advocate of liberation for black people and all people, I bring an important underrepresented voice into governance of the station and network. As a young mother who has struggled to raise my son as a conscious African, I know how important alternative voices and means of communication can be. I want to see the LSP get involved in more outreach to listener members and attract new listeners, particularly from poor communities that are facing survival issues. This will help build a stronger and broader base for the station and help Pacifica fulfill its mission of identifying and helping resolve the causes of conflict especially in poor communities whose needs are not being addressed by this system. I'm a member of the Black Riders Liberation Party, a group whose members put our lives on the line every day to struggle for peace among youth from different sets, to build unity between black and brown, and to also combat police brutality. I have faced political imprisonment by this repressive system because of my political views and have emerged even stronger in my commitment.
9: The candidate statement is property of the author only and not of KPFK or Pacifica. I'm speaking on behalf of Richie Whitman, a candidate for KPFK's local station board. I am an avid KPFK volunteer who wants to feel like he has contributed to KPFK in another capacity. I've contributed to the station by answering phones in Spanish and English, picking up food and ice, taking out the trash, harassing Carrie Harrison and Alan Minsky on the air, and even helping to rebuild the driveway. I enjoy these tasks, but I want to feed my talentless ego as a member of the station board. I believe that the station is already making great improvements. We can become more effective by promoting premiums, such as the film club outside of FunDrive, and encouraging some of our programmers to spend even more time discussing opposing viewpoints with true experts. I was speaking on behalf of Richie Whitman, a candidate for KPFK's local station board.
11: If you have not received your ballot by September 1st, contact one 866 piece one or l e s underscore k p f k at pacifica.org. Thank you.